Welcome to the AC Podcast. This is Steve. I'm here with Andy. It is great to be with you. You know, some listeners might not realize, Steve, how we do the podcast in not only a pandemic, but the fact that you live in Alberta. Listeners, if you don't know, Steve is uh, our Alberta director. So uh, what we've done is for a long time, Steve just, you know... We had various means, whether it be telephone, FaceTime, you know, we kind of shuffled around where Steve would podcast with Terry and myself. But now what we do is we have a Zoom call and Steve and I can at least then see each other and he's got his own mic. I've got my own mic recording. And then we marry the two in this blissful union. <laughs> so listen, I'm going to share my screen here because you need to see this. I don't want to tell you a whole lot, okay? But this happened to a lady that ran out of hairspray. So she got creative. And this is this is what happened. Hey, y'all. For those of y'all that know me know, my hair has been like this for about a month now. It's not by choice. No. <laughs> it's not by choice. When I do my hair, I like to, you know, finish it off with a little got to be glue spray. You know, just to keep it in place. Well, I didn't have any more got to be glue spray, so I used this. <laughs> Is that gorillas? Bad, bad idea. That's gorilla Yo, glue. Look, oh, my man. Hair, it don't move. You hear what I'm telling you? It don't move. I've washed my hair 15 times. <laughs> And it don't move. <laughs> 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 My hair. So I'm going to tell y'all like this. If you ever, ever run out of got to be glue spray, don't ever, ever use this. Unless you want to have it like that. <laughs> oh, my word. <laughs> it don't move. <laughs> it don't move. <laughs> wow. Uh, tell me oh, that man. that doesn't just bring a little bit of joy to your heart. Oh, man. So poor this, poor, this poor lady runs out of hairspray. And so she, apparently, I didn't know this, but... Gorilla Glue, which is some really intense glue, has recently made a spray adhesive. So Aww. she so she took the spray adhesive and she used this on her hair. And her if you would we'll we'll have to post this video on the show notes. Because if you haven't seen it, you've got to see this. Her oh, her hair is glued down. It is locked tight. And it's been like this for a month. So she makes this appeal on video where Gorilla Glue actually responds to her and, and gives her some advice on how to potentially get rid of this. <laughs> but it doesn't work. And oh, so now no. she raised, as of this podcast, $17,000 to help her unglue her hair. <laughs> and then a plastic surgeon reached out to her and said, hey, I, I will help you for free. But apparently this procedure that she's going to get and and apparently from what i understand she is consulting with the uh plastic surgeon today uh as of this podcast like this is this is currently taking place <laughs> apparently it is a three-day procedure steve oh wow i know i would you wouldn't expect that this you know yeah. would require would require so much but it's going to take three days and i guess what they're gonna have to do is just shave her head and if you haven't seen the video yet 
from what I saw just now, she's got a lot of hair. Oh, and it looks beautiful. It looks perfect, yeah. Steve. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it don't move. <laughs> Oh, oh my goodness. So listen, in a, in days like this, sometimes you just need a good laugh. Mm-hmm. And I'm telling you right now, there is a good laugh to be had there. I'm, yeah. I'm so thankful that she posted that to warn the rest of us not to glue your hair, but mm-hmm. uh, but as well, just to bring a little bit of sunshine in my life. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for that. And And I'm glad to see too that the internet community rallied around her in some way, right? Like raised the money for... It's pretty and, impressive that yeah. enough people came together and said, hey, we're going to help you unglue yeah. your hair. Likely complete strangers, right? At least the vast majority of them would have been yeah, that's what strangers. I. that's what I understand. That's right. And, and then even... Even this doctor, you know, to give his time to help her out. It'll get you laughing in action and at the same time encourage you that there is some humanity still out there. So maybe maybe this is a good place then, Steve, for us to jump into our conversation today because we want to talk on the subject of love. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and it's interesting right here seeing some, some brotherly love mm-hmm. being given to this lady. You know, it was interesting with Steve when you said, hey, Andy, I think we should do a podcast on love. And at first I said, OK, yeah, that sounds great. And then this week, as I'm thinking about that topic, I'm like, this is a deep topic, mm. Steve. Like, as, I, as I'm trying to get my head around this, I, I mean, listeners, please, as, as, as Steve and I talk about the subject of love, realize that this is a deep well that uh, I have not pondered to the depths I feel like I should to have this conversation, but I'm actually looking forward to it because I think, I think it's a subject we need to think more about and talk more about. I mean, love is a moral category as well, because it has to do with what it means for us to have proper relationship. It is a moral category. I would agree with you, but yet at the same time, it is outside of that moral quality simultaneously. When you think about morality, for example, you and I would argue that there's natural law and Mm -hmm. that you and I encounter morality at some level, right? But there are various aspects of love that you just don't naturally encounter. Like, for example, the love of a child. Well, you would need to have a child to Mm -hmm know the love of a child. Uh, And and I'm sure we're going to parse out the different types of love, whether that be the love for a spouse or something to that effect, right? Well, to experience that type of love, you would need that type of relationship. Friendship would be the same thing. So then uh, let's start by talking a little bit about, well, what is love, right? I mean, I don't, I'm not going to go into the whole baby don't hurt me no more <laughs> side of things because it's, it's become kind of a cliche now. <laughs> but but I, I remember my sister watching this one video and telling me that, you know, here's a group of kindergartners or grade one or two students that actually answer this question, what is love? And they give their take on it. And one of them said, well, love is when daddy is taking a dump on the toilet and mommy's in the bathroom and she doesn't think it's gross. You know? <laughs> who, said, she, who said this to you? It's, it's school kid, right? Grade one, maybe oh, okay. grade two, you know, those kinds of things. And that's cute. But then when we actually start 
thinking about, okay, what really is love? It's a little harder to pin down than we might think. It's, it seems to be one of those things where we, when you encounter it, oh yeah, this is an example of love. But then when you actually try to define it, it gets a little harder. I don't think it's insurmountable. But what would you say is your definition of love? Well, I guess that's part of the problem I'm, I'm having, Steve, is as you said, hey, let's talk about this subject. And I'm realizing that I haven't thought a whole lot about this mm-hmm. subject. I'm starting to realize that love is uh, a difficult thing to get your mind around. And like, as we think about, okay, how do we define this? It, it brings me back to the four different forms of love that we find mm-hmm. in, in Greek and, and the way that those are used. But yet this kind of love that ultimately God has for us, I think starts to get us more at the core of foundation of what love actually is. But so maybe, maybe before we get too far down that, let's just take a moment to just help people to appreciate these four different kinds of love that I think is a helpful starting place. Yeah. And so if you're a C.S. Lewis fan, likely you've heard of his book, Four Loves, where he touches on this topic a little bit. Now, the word love in English, as you know, for those of you who have studied the Bible, studied Greek and things like that, you probably heard several times over the course of your studies that the English word love can be very general. Very general. Yeah, that's a good word for it, right? Because the word love covers a whole lot of different kinds of things. I love my dog sometimes. Mm -hmm. I love my kids (laughs) sometimes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but yeah, Yeah. honestly, I mean, there's lots of things. You can love your car. You can love your Mm -hmm. your wife. And clearly, these are different kinds of love. At least as we use the word love today in modern English, we use it in various different ways, right? And in Greek, we talk about agape, which is sort of the self-sacrificial love. This is the word that is used in the New Testament to talk about the love of God. And then there is philos, which is often described as friendship love. It's different from romantic love, which is eros. And then there's the storge, which is the parent-child love. Storge would be affection. You have, Mm -hmm. and C.S. Lewis brings this out, like you can have uh, love for um, your dog, for example. Mm -hmm. By the way, one thing that Lewis brings out in in his book, The Four Loves, that I thought I've always thought was interesting when he talks about storge, is he refers to it as gin, in that gin is kind of this base that you can make various different drinks from. And he sees, and I and I can see where he's getting at here, he sees storge as kind of that base love that you can mix, if you will, and make various different types. Yeah, that that makes sense. Now, um, In Korean, too, we parse out love slightly differently, but there are some common elements to it. Uh, So, for example, in Korean, the sort of the generic word for love is 사랑. And so we use that word to translate agape in the New Testament. So when we say God is love, we say God is 사랑. So that's the generic word for love. That covers over a lot of different things. But then there is the word for romantic love, which is yun. And so, you know, if you broke up with somebody, we say shiryan, or your lover is referred to as yanin. Now, what if you were to tell your girlfriend or fiance, I love you? Then you would use the word sarang. Okay. So let me ask you, though, would using that word hold a lot of 
implications. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the Korean society, it's socially pretty conservative still, and so even just to say somebody like in a male female relationship to tell somebody I like you itself is a huge deal, because it is. Just one step closer to saying I love you. By the way, let me just uh, interject there because that reminded me of when Nancy and I were dating. I, mm-hmm. I told her that I wouldn't tell her I love you uh, until I knew that we I, I was I wanted to marry her. That you know, because this is I think part of the problem that we have in English is love is just so generic that that it loses its weight. Yeah. But then it was interesting when when her and I were dating because we put weight into the word I love you and didn't use it. Mm-hmm. Which had this inter- interesting implication where one day uh, Nancy and I were uh, out on a date and she looked at me and said, I love you. Well, mm-hmm. all of a sudden that had this weight to it because there was it meant more than just right. that generic meaning. And I looked back at her and said, and I like you a lot, too. <laughs> <laughs> As you can imagine, that didn't go over well. But it was this moment where she had made this commitment that she loved me. Mm-hmm. I wasn't quite there yet. And, yeah. and I think it was like a month or two later that I told her I loved you. And then it wasn't too long after that that I asked her to marry me. I think the function of those words in Korean, I like or I love, they're somewhat similar. It's a way of you letting the other person know that you're interested in them. But sarang is a bit more like, a lot like what you said, uh, there's a bit more weight to it now. Because now this is, this could lead to marriage. By the way, if I could just throw something out there for listeners and maybe parents or young people in general, because I often get this question, you know, at what age should you date? Uh, especially as a young adult pastor, this is a question that you get a lot, yeah. and especially when I was a youth pastor too, and parents asking me, you know, what age should I let my children date? And and I, and I think this is so interesting because when you start thinking about love and when you have a weightiness to it, you start mm-hmm. to appreciate that there's this level of commitment that starts to, it's, that's pointing you in the direction of marriage. And that idea of this committed marital love that my, and, and so my answer has always been, listen, you should start dating when you know that you could marry somebody. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've, I've heard a comedian once say that, you know, that he's got a daughter and he once told her that she can start dating at age 33, because if, you know, Jesus never got married, and if she can outlive the Lord, <laughs> then you can start dating. But yeah, that that is that is a good point. I mean, what is this for? I guess it's it, that's not something that we often think about when we start dating, right? What is this for? Yeah. Um, for many young people, and I know this was the case for me. I just wanted the thrill of having the attention and affection of a girl. But is that really what dating? All that it amounts to. Well, and, um, and I think for our culture at large, dating is is more about flirting with eros. This sexual love where people may get into a dating relationship, and particularly if they're Christian, it's almost to see how close to the eros can I get. But what you've done there is you've you've confused what the the loves are, and, you, and you're mixing those, but you're also confusing what it is to date the type of relationship that you're pursuing actually looks like. And this is where you can get into a lot of danger that, and again, Lewis brings this up, is that within Eros, you can 
reduce that relationship to an I it relationship so that it's not really love at all. It's it's now it's just this carnal desire where where I just want to use another person. Yeah, it's not about the other person. It's about what that person can give me. Uh, often in the form of the thrill or the sexual intimacy or whatever it might be. Exactly, which is really no love at all. I mean, we would say that's actually the opposite. Just to clarify to our listeners, like we're not against dating. No, not at all. <laughs> what we would like to encourage people to do is that if you're going to do it, do it intentionally. And Steve, on that note of intentionally, that also informs you when you should get out of the relationship, doesn't it? Like if you're dating somebody and you know that you wouldn't marry them, now you know that you should get out of that relationship. But when you don't have any intention or purpose behind what you're doing, I, I see so many young people not, not sure what to do in those situations, right? Bringing it back to the Korean language, there is one more kind of love that's a bit difficult to capture in English, and it's jung. And jung, what it is, is it's kind of a, an attachment of a sort driven by affection. And so you can have that sort of thing with your animals. You can have you can have that sort of thing between parents and children or lovers. Interestingly, in English, when we say "I miss you," in Korean, what you say is literally "I want to see you." What you mean by that is "I want to be with you." That is another kind of dimension of love that we express in the Korean language, apart from the generic word "love." It's a it's a real deficit, isn't it, in the English language, the lack of clarity often with mm-hmm. English words and in, in just how general uh, a word can be, such as love. I mean, that it, it can encompass so, so much. Whereas yeah. I, I like what you're saying here in, in Korean, there's there's the ability to parse that out. You see that in the Greek, that there's this, you know, ability to parse this out. One of the things I also think is interesting, though, Steve, kind of going back to this this idea of morality, you know, within morality, you and I would argue that morality is something that you encounter. It's not something that you create. But this is interesting about love, isn't it? As I would argue that Throughout history, whatever culture you find, you will find these four kinds of love. It is something that is encountered. You're not going to find a culture that doesn't know what friendship is, right? Different cultures may use different words or parse it out a bit bit differently. Yeah. But they seem to certainly center around these four kinds of love that we talk about. And one of the things that I found really interesting is in marriage, these four loves come together. You have your eros, you have your philos, and goodness, once you get married, you understand just how much sacrifice that it takes from a Christian worldview to live with another sinner. Especially the case when you have storge, you know, that as you have children, now it takes even more sacrifice. There, There is an aspect of this, though, that I think is really worth highlighting. And again, it comes back to this relationship between love and morality. Love has a way of shining a light, if you will, on morality. And, and, and I want to give you an example. Tell me what you think about this, Steve. That, you know, as a pastor, I have officiated a lot of weddings. Especially as a young adult pastor. Especially right? as a young adult pastor. 
And when I officiate, you know, a wedding, and particularly uh, these days, it's very common for young people to write their vows to one another. And if they don't write their own vows to each other, then they will go and get some sort of traditional vow. Now, one of the things that I always tell a couple when I'm going to officiate their wedding is I'm okay if they write their own vows. I'm okay if they go find some traditional ones, but they have to send it to me because I want to look it over just to make sure it's theologically correct. Now, here is what has happened every single time without fail. By and large, 99% of the time, those wedding vows, I don't need to address. They are completely fine, theologically. The 1% that does happen periodically, where I do need to make a correction, is they will vow their love eternally to one another. You know, they'll say, I will love you forever sort of thing. I'll, you know, I'll be there forever for you. It's like, uh, you know, the, a Christian marriage is not a forever marriage. It's, it's till death, it's for a lifetime, till death to us part. So I'll, I'll correct them there. But here's my point. And all the weddings I've done, I've never had somebody create vows that did not reflect accurately on morality. Steve, I can't help but think that this is just an incredible example of our ability to encounter morality when we come into relationship with another person, especially somebody that we love. I would maybe qualify what you said a little bit, because in reading, for example, Dominion by Tom Holland, one of the things that he talks about is how Paul's theology so impacted our understanding of marriage. Ephesians, for example, you know, wives submit to your husbands, but then the context, the verse immediately preceding that is about mutual submission. Now, in a Roman context, that would have been just incredibly odd, uh, revolutionary, in fact. Now, what I would say is that what the Greco-Roman world exhibited was a deviation from what was meant to be Because from the creation, it was meant to be a a mutually loving, uh, self-sacrificial kind of love that was to be established. Just to kind of qualify what you were saying, yeah, I think it, it is the case that we encounter morality, but in our unrighteousness, as Paul tells us, sometimes we suppress that and and we do whatever our carnal, sinful desires would have us do. Does that does that make sense? It does. It does. I think that this is a good pushback. I appreciate that because I think you're absolutely right that you will see in different moments in history and in different cultures where this goes awry, where they they don't get it right. And you have to ask yourself, well, why are they not getting it right? Here would be my pushback, okay? And and my argument would be that sadly, what we have seen throughout history, history that often doesn't get talked about, Steve, is that the two, there are two types of people that are most dehumanized throughout history, and that would be women and children. Right. Yeah. Women and children are not viewed within that I-thou relationship. So I would argue that one of the things that Paul's doing is he's lifting women and children up to the status of a human being. And particularly from a Christian perspective, when we speak of an I-thou relationship, we are specifically talking about encountering 
God in another person. Not that you're God, but that you're made in the image of God. And there is this dignity that is being encountered when that relationship is viewed correctly. So my argument would be, historically, we have seen plenty of cultures that get that wrong, not because they don't see the morality, but they're not seeing the humanity. Right. I mean, even between, again, going back to the whole Greco-Roman Empire example, between free Roman males, they would have had a code of conduct because they saw the dignity in the other person. Now, stemming from that kind of Greek Stoic tradition or Aristotle too, right? These ancient thinkers all based dignity on certain kinds of excellence that you have or virtue. If you hadn't developed these things, then you didn't have dignity. So, so what you've done here that I think is helpful is I was highlighting how this is seen in our culture today with regards to marriage. But if we go back ancient times, looking at Greek culture or Roman culture, you know, you could just shine a spotlight on friendship, for example, and say, okay, well, what makes a good friend? This is where things get interesting because we could ask, okay, well, you know, what is the source of this love? What is the source of what we're talking about here regarding morality, you know, this right relationship. And this might be helpful for listeners to appreciate that when the Bible's talking about sin, when the Bible's talking about evil, it's this idea of breaking relationship, breaking relationship with God, breaking relationship with one another. There is no such thing as morality outside of relationship, uh, relationship between, again, this I-thou relationship. This is why when you reduce somebody to an I-it relationship, reducing them to an object or an animal, you can do whatever you like to that person, enslave, murder, you name it, because in the breaking of that relationship, you're no longer encountering that morality, that duty, or that love. Since we're talking about the relationship between love and morality, uh, it's really, I found it really helpful the way Thomas Aquinas put it, the way he defined love is to will the good of the other. That makes sense. It, it's it, That would be the sort of the minimal requirement for love, at least. I don't know if it encapsulates everything that love is, but that is at least the base minimum, right? To will the good of the other. And right there already, we're hearing echoes of you know good and evil and the, these moral concepts. So this is where it's the rubber meets the road in our day and age, especially with our conversation about uh, the sexual minorities, LGBTQ persons, often what we're told is you have to accept, right? Accept, accept, accept. Now, then the the question is, well, love and acceptance, like, are they one and the same thing? And I would argue, no, there are certain things you do not accept on the basis of love. Because when I, anybody who's had children and tried to raise them as good people will understand there are certain things you cannot tolerate. Yeah. I mean, that's such a good point. I mean, I can love another person, but that does not entail accepting them as, say, a serial killer or something to that effect. That that these then are, are two different things. The problem with our culture today, though, is that we've conflated the two. Thus, to love is to accept. Yeah, I think that's partly because we've bought into this existentialist philosophy. 
that would have us believe that we are defined by what we do. Uh, but notice, by the way, Steve, because I, I think this just has to be pointed out, that this always only works one directionally. There is the one who has the high ground that says, you must accept me. But notice that in doing so, they're, they're not accepting the other. We live in a culture today that is conflating acceptance with love. So, you know, these days you have to give your, you know, stamp of approval that, that you accept whatever behavior it might be. And then in doing so, that's the only thing that qualifies as love or that's right, if you will. Yeah. See, that's a great illustration of how morality is exclusive. Very much right? so. Because it'll say, this thing is good, this thing is evil, that is right, and that is wrong. And then what happens is, as you buy into this idea that you are defined by what you do or what you believe, what happens is you can't separate the two. So you can't critique what somebody believes without coming off as you're attacking the person. Because I was just going to say, Steve, notice how this is coming back to this question that we talked about with regards to humanity and seeing mm -hmm. the person. And now if they conflate what they do with their humanity, then, you know, you can appreciate the where they're getting their argument from. But the problem is, is their argument is flawed, right? What you do right. is not defining your humanity. Mm-hmm. And so in Christianity, it's your essence that precedes existence. Before you do anything, it's what you are. That comes first. And out of what you are, you do what you do. I want to come back to shining the spotlight on what love is, which requires us to take a look at who God is. Because I think this is absolutely crucial if we're going to understand, particularly as Christians, what it actually means to practice love. Here's a thought, Steve, that has really weighed on me as of recent. Jesus's answer to the greatest commandment, you know, love God and love people. And he, but he says it in this Hebraic way with regards to loving God with everything that means to be human, loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then he adds on to it, of course, and love your neighbor as yourself. Which raises a, a really crucial question, doesn't it? What does it mean to love God? How do I love God? And, and I wouldn't mind getting into that in just a moment. But before we do, uh, it's by looking, though, at who God is and God's love for us, as John tells us, that, that it starts there. Not that we love God, but that he first loved us, that, that we can understand especially in our, in our brokenness, what love actually is. And that's why it bothers me when people say, you know, you might have seen this meme float around where it's, it's a cartoon of Jesus on one side and a group of what seem to be religious leaders on the other side. And Jesus says, you try to understand love through the scriptures. Well, I try to understand scriptures through love. And I'm thinking to myself, it sounds spiritual, but what I see is, yeah. listen, this is a, a classic case of reading into a text rather than reading out of it. On the flip side, another way that this gets construed is we'll miss this idea that God is love, as John again tells us in 1 John chapter 4, God is love. But what we'll do, though, is we will twist that into 
God is law. And what notice what happens there. If, if we say God is law, then it's out of God's law that he loves. But that is not the message of the Bible. God is not a God of law. He is a God of love. It's from God's love that God's law comes. And the idea there being that God's desire for you is not to become a rule follower. God's desire for you is to flourish because he loves you. And in fact, that's why you had a lock on the uh, cupboard with all the cleaning supplies. Right. Which, right. And you told your kids, don't go in there. That is my rule. That is my law. Now, here's where God's love is so unique, though. You do not deserve God's love, yet God loves you. It's very difficult for us to receive that kind of love because when we receive love, we want to earn that love. But it's not until we understand love and receive love in that way that we can begin to learn to give love away in that same manner as we witness in the life of Christ. I learned this the hard way. When anybody spent time with me because he or she loved me, I had a hard time accepting that because in my mind, I am not lovable. So surely when this person is spending time with me, it's because this person is nice. I wanted to show love, compassion to everybody else around me. And I was going around always trying to give and never receive. Where that begins is your relationship with the Lord. Are you willing, are you able to allow the Lord's love in your life to wash over you that God loves you and you do not deserve it at all? And in that love, and this is, this is where you become a Christian, this is where you become a disciple, is knowing that God is good and that God loves you. And that by receiving that love, that you can begin to learn from God, from Jesus particularly, how to love other people in that way. And here's where things get interesting and challenging, Stephen. This is for me the part where I really struggled. And that was that when you give love in that way, it means that you will suffer. You will experience difficulty. When you give love away, that love can be abused and mistreated, right? I mean, it raises that old question, is it better to have loved and lost than to have never loved at all, right? Because you can very easily in this world hide away so that you can try to mitigate yourself from suffering and never really live. But when we receive love, unmerited and learn to give that love away, it, it really does invite us into the Christian life, what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Amen. Let's wrap it up there. That was some, uh, those are some good thoughts, Andy. Thank you. Uh, I hope this episode has been helpful to you. I know sometimes we talk about some really heady stuff about, you know, intellectual history and things like that, because I think we need that. But I thought this episode was particularly helpful on a more practical level. I think it maybe would be helpful for us to end from one of the most beautiful passages on love. Uh, it's a passage of scripture that I've committed to memory, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Uh, those who have read it 
in its context know that the context is the church. It's God's love, but it's also brotherly love. It's all the different ways that you've been gifted, as chapter 12 talks about. Are you serving because you love people? Is the love that you have, is that what's motivating the gifts and the abilities you have and how you're using those in the church? What I'd love to just end with is at the end of that chapter, I'd encourage you to read it. I'd even, I'd encourage you to memorize it. Paul says, we have these three things, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. What I believe Paul is getting at is simply this, loving people is difficult and it's going to invite you into sorrow, into challenges, into suffering. It can be in a multiplicity of ways, but we're being called to this love that is greater than faith and greater than hope in that there is a day coming that we look forward to and we follow God into. The love in which we've lived this life has an eternal quality to it. You're, you will no longer need your faith and your hope will be fulfilled. And what we have is the love in which we've lived this life. The, in other words, the sorrows and the challenges that we go through are not the end. And they have an eternal perspective that awaits us and that we live in light of. That'll preach. Let's wrap it up there. Thank you so much, listeners, for joining us. I hope this episode was enjoyable and helpful to you. The AC Podcast is a ministry of Apologetics Canada, and we'll come back next week with more stuff to think about. Until then, take care of yourselves. Bye for now. Once again, listeners, thank you so much for joining us today on the AC Podcast. Wanted to let you know that if you missed the Literary Expedition on February 7th, we have another one happening on Sunday, February 21st at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. This is an opportunity to hear from and interact with the AC team on C.S. Lewis's book, The Abolition of Man. For more information and to register, please visit apologeticscanada.com slash literary dash expedition. Lastly, happy Valentine's Day. Enjoy your long weekend and have a great family day.